0: Artistic Whispers Productions presents.
1: Down from Ten. A country house mystery written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. Featuring the vocal talents of Philippa Valentine. T. Morris. Kitty Nakian, Nathan Lowell.
0: Miss Callendar.
1: Nobilis Reed.
0: Christiana
1: Ellis Chris Lester With original music by Danny Shade This podcast contains adult language, sexual situations, and bizarre humor. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, this is Abigail Hilton from the Prophet of Panamandora podcast. Come visit me at www.panamandora.com You're listening to Episode 9 of Down From 10, and this is the story so far. A house divided is soon buried, or, in this case, a buried house is soon divided. The question of what to do about their predicament has Carol burrowing out to get a lay of the land, while the others get laid. I mean, take stock, secure supplies, and see how well they can survive if they are, in fact, trapped. Meanwhile, Jeremiah's expertise as an electronics geek is suddenly in demand. Chapter 8, E-8, Afternoon Jeremiah found the desk in the walk-in closet in the library, just as Carol had described it to him. The CB sat on top of it, with its aerial wire running up a chute in the top of the closet and out to the real world. He'd managed to borrow a digital voice recorder and include it together with the microphone, so that the CB would transmit every time the recorder played its message.
0: Sit up a repeating
1: beacon, she'd told him. Somehow, having something to do and knowing that everyone else was busy with other survival tasks made him feel better. He didn't like sitting still. Never had. That was probably why he'd been thrown into dance school in the first place. He checked over the wires again, making sure the trigger would work. It all looked good. He took the yellow pad he'd used to transcribe Carol's message, turned the recorder on, and read.
2: Any emergency services that may be listening... This is Jeremiah Evans. Myself and seven other people are trapped under an avalanche at 35 Tree Line Road, above Smith Logging Road, east of Fern. Please send snowplows as soon as possible. This is an automated beacon, recorded at 1.25 p.m. on January 5th, and will repeat in ten seconds.
1: Jeremiah silently counted to ten and pressed the stop button. He switched the recorder to play mode, toggled on the loop function, and pressed play. With the microphone set to voice activation, it should work as long as the power stayed on. Gold is hell on pipes, and pipes trapped under God-knew-how-many-feet-of-snow faced the serious danger of freezing. Having had to go without from time to time, Adele knew firsthand that a lack of reliable clean water would push the group from tense to murderous in only a few hours, if they all didn't start falling sick to dysentery and cholera first. When the meeting in the living room had broken up, Adele had pulled Carol aside and begged off kitchen duty for a few minutes in order to open all the taps in the house didn't take a lot, and with the well in the basement and its pipes located below ground, it probably wasn't necessary. But a few gallons a day lost through slowly dripping taps was a small price to pay to be sure that the water flowed dependably. Sarah had never been up to the attic room in Carol's new house before. Something about climbing up the stairs put her in mind of the books she'd read in junior high. There must have been an entire genre of them. Books about secret games, secret passages, fantasy worlds, imprisoned children of incestuous couplings, and -and hide-and-seek games gone awry, all taking place in old attics. If porn was, as her father had tried over and over to convince her, gutter fiction, then fantasy books written for girls must be attic fiction. Which, of course, begged the question of what kind of fiction boys got to read while all the girls were shut up in the attic probably something to do with garages or dungeons or torture, which, come to think of it, wasn't much different than Sarah's favorite varieties of gutter fiction. A good attic was like a disused corner of God's brain, full of cobwebs and dust and whole forgotten universes just waiting to be discovered. This attic looked like someone had tromped uninvited into God's brain with a feather duster, a pair of rubber gloves, and a bottle of disinfectant and declared war on all disorder at once. Someone who had decided that cobwebs existed solely to have their asses kicked. Someone who could actually get away with telling God to clean up his dirty mind if she wanted to. Well, that someone had gone to town on this little room. There wasn't even a respectable film of dust anywhere, and with the polished vents and pipes and heating ducts running all over the place, it looked like something that belonged more to a steampunked world than to a mountain McMansion. Sarah surmounted the top of the stairs into the depressingly tidy room, with Katie walking a step behind her to the right.
0: Okay.
1: Katie touched Sarah's hip.
0: Check the window. I'll check the air exchangers. Yes, ma'am.
1: A bare pair of LED bulbs lit the room from their nests in the rafters, just this side of the insulation paneling. As Sarah crossed the room to the south-facing windows, whatever little hope she might have harbored that the attic was still above snow level was dashed. No light peeked through the curtains. Peeling them back, the windows behind them admitted only to the same flat, dark gray blankness that afflicted the downstairs windows. Behind her, Sarah heard Katie wrestling with the grill covering the vents.
0: Ah, cedar and oak construction rather than pine. Whoever built this place wasn't fooling around. You said the same thing on the phone when you were helping with the remodel.
1: Sarah crossed the room to the windows on the north side, not expecting the results there to be any more favorable. Still true. Katie pulled the vent free and stuck her head in. At the other windows, Sarah found just what she'd expected. She turned away from the dark grey and back to Katie, who was now squatting limbo-style, her shoulders resting in the vent and her face looking up at whatever was at the end of it. Can you see anything? Yeah. Her voice was sharp like she was shouting through a culvert. Which, of course, was precisely what Katie was doing.
0: I can see orange light coming in through the sides. Looks like a sunset if I ever saw one.
1: Katie started to crab-walk forward out of the vent, then lost her balance and flailed her hands. Sarah grabbed them and let Katie use her as a counterweight. Once clear of the opening, Katie dusted her hands off with a small flourish of triumph.
3: Looks like we're okay.
1: She hefted the grill back into place. Well, they weren't going to suffocate then, Kevin's gallows humor and Jeremiah's panic aside. Sarah meandered around the perimeter of the room, taking great pleasure in pushing things an inch here two inches there, or giving them a twist so that they were just off-prime, just enough so that the next time Carol came up to the attic, she'd go subtly, quietly, but decidedly nuts. If Sarah was lucky, it would happen while she was here. She made a mental note to find a pretext for getting Carol back into the attic room sometime before the retreat ended. At the east end of the room, in a little cubbyhole next to the staircase, Sarah found a table covered with a cheesecloth. Something was under the cloth, and Sarah pulled it back, revealing a very odd-looking contraption indeed. A cylinder, about two feet long and covered with switches and knobs of all shapes and sizes, fastened to a base at either end with a molded brass housing, engraved with numbers and equations that Sarah didn't even bother trying to read after the first square root sign. It was math. She had a Kevin to handle things like that when they really needed to be handled. It didn't stop her from randomly throwing switches to see if they did anything.
0: We're good in here, too. So, we're stuck, but we can breathe as long as the air keeps moving.
1: Sarah looked over her shoulder to see the little Asian squirming out of the second pipe.
0: Looks like both ducks go all the way down and have vents on every... Sarah! You shouldn't be screwing around with Carol's stuff. She'll have
1: your hide. Don't say that until you look at it. Have you ever seen anything like this? Sarah turned back to the device. Every dial and switch just made a satisfying click, but it felt like it should do something more. The thing was bolted to the desktop, and it wasn't light. There were cords running to and from it.
0: No, and I don't think I... Katie
1: was cut off when the lights in the room went dark. Sarah had just flipped another one of the switches, but this one did something. Projected above them, and all around, was a starscape speckled with nebulae. Much more vivid and colorful than she'd ever seen from the ground, or even in a planetarium, it looked like someone had spent a lot of time pulling together Hubble photos to patch a version of the sky that really was as beautiful as Kevin was always telling her it was. It was like God had gone painting in the little attic room. It seemed to suck the breath right out of her lungs.
0: Oh, that's nice.
1: It was a stupid thing to say, but they were the only words Sarah could find.
0: You've seen her with her telescope. She must use this one. It's Claudio.
1: Madre Dios, the work that must have gone into this.
2: I wish we had some music.
1: Sarah sighed, only half hearing her own words. Would you like to dance, little kitten? Sarah felt Katie's hand take hers. Sarah looked at her, not sure what to expect. Katie's eyes sparkled. She took Sarah's other hand and leaned back, then started singing a doo-wop of the first few bars of In the Mood. Sarah grinned through the dance, taking the horn hits for herself. The two of them kept time with their feet and their lips, jitterbugging beneath the stars in the tiny room, trading harmonies like girlhood friends. Can you see anything, shall we? Gerd nervously paced the edge of the little tube outside his bedroom window. After considerable debate, they decided it would be less risky to tunnel out the second floor than the front door.
0: Plenty. Looks like we've got about fifteen feet of snow, and there's
1: avalanches all over the valley. Coming down. Gerd stepped to the side and reached out to Carol as she emerged from her slide down the tube, just ahead of the tunnel collapsing behind her. Thanks. Her face was pink from frostnip, and not altogether happy with what it had just seen. She looked wryly up at him.
0: The snow's loose and wet, and I can't see a building above the snow for miles. I'm not sending anyone out in that, even with snowshoes. If they don't freeze, they'll fall into a
1: gully. Gaird nodded gravely. So we best be about our chores, I think. She patted him on the shoulder. Relax.
0: All our chimneys are clear, and we've got enough food to hold out for a few days. Let's go.
1: The door to the garage burst inward with an unaccustomed bang, followed dramatically by Kevin's boot. And here, my good man, is the last escalator down into the netherworld. Kevin flared his arm out and downwards, as if the three steps down into the garage were the winding stair of (sighs) Curithungal. A dramatic physicist.
2: That's a first.
1: He shouldered his way past, only to wince when Kevin continued his repartee in response to the jibe descending down billions and billions of stairs to the ancient depths of the cosmos. Kevin trailed off when his narration brought him face-to-face with Jeremiah. Katie's right. You're a loony. Jeremiah shouldered past as well. Kevin seemed undeterred and started humming a desultory ditty as he descended the stairs behind the other two men.
0: You guys will need to make sure the generator's ready, in case we need it,
1: Carol had said. The sight which greeted the threesome left them nothing, if not well-equipped for the task. The garage room was piled high on all sides with supplies. Canned food, cordwood, wood, and flats of bottled water seemed to add extra strength to the walls. A well-arranged set of hand tools hung from a pegboard off in one corner. A posthole digger, an axe, a spade, a pickaxe, and some other odds and ends all arranged meticulously by size, shape, color, and alphabetically by name. Jeremiah whistled. Well, that's a first.
2: What? First time I've ever seen a storage room look like a Nordstrom.
1: Yeah, well, that's Carol for you. Kevin pushed past Jeremiah and Amos and took center stage on the clear floor.
3: The only woman you'll ever meet who turned down a free ride at Oxford because she thought the streets were too dirty.
1: Amos stifled a laugh. Jeremiah was agog as Kevin sauntered over to the hand tools. (laughs) You're shitting me. Amos took a couple of steps back so that he was even with Jeremiah and put his hand over the boy's shoulders in an almost fatherly gesture. Let me tell you something, Jer. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, right. Sorry, first time I ever saw Carol. Here. Kevin called out just in time for Amos to duck as a spade flew past him to Jeremiah. Toss this out to Gerd. Jeremiah caught it and retreated up the stairs to the entryway door. He stuck his head out the door and called,
2: Gerd, got your shovel.
1: Carol's face appeared in the doorway. She looked relatively unflapped, all things considered, but there was an air of strain below her cool demeanor that Amos, at least, could feel all the way across the room.
0: There, I'll take it. You boys having fun yet?
1: Hard to tell. You haven't given us time to find the KY jelly yet. Amos turned around to find Kevin holding a tub of lug grease up as if it might be a proper substitute. He realized belatedly that he was going to have to work for the title of being the dirtiest old man in the room, On second thought, he wondered if it was a title he really wanted to work for in this group. On third thought, it seemed Kevin already had it locked up, so he might as well just relax and enjoy the show. Ah,
0: men and tools. The love that dare not speak its name. Be sure to wash up before tea.
1: Carol popped back out and closed the door firmly behind her. Jeremiah stood staring at the blank door for a moment, as if his world had just been rotated a few degrees off prime. Then he seemed to shake it off and returned his attention to Amos.
2: So what was that about Carol?
1: Oh, well, first time I ever saw her, she was sitting outside a convention hall where she was supposed to be the guest of honor. Amos smirked as he started the wind-up to the punchline. She was having an argument with her agent over whether she was obligated to go into the hall where they hadn't cleaned up from the Rocky Horror showing the night before.
2: Doesn't sound that weird.
1: She was accepting a Hugo. Holy shit. Don't listen to him, kid. He's pulling your leg. Kevin tossed a bottle of water to each of them. Amos cracked his open, took a swig, and raised his hand as if about to give the Boy Scout salute. Swear to God. Kevin set his own water bottle down unopened on the workbench next to the pegboard. Look, we have to find the generator fuel.
3: Now, are you two members of the Prophecy Squad going to start bucking this cordwood, or are you going to argue the finer points of anal retentive vacuum
1: fetishists? Amos chuckled, drawing the physicist's attention again. You've been coming to these retreats how many years? Six. Kevin's eyes narrowed in suspicion. Why do you ask? For a painter, you sure don't pay attention to much. Amos knew he was smirking like he'd just eaten the neighbor's cat, but he didn't give a damn. He was enjoying this one.
2: I beg your pardon? There's no way a
1: woman like Carol is going to keep diesel oil buried behind cordwood and up against a wall with electric outlets. Here. Amos strolled to the other end of the garage, to a metal cabinet set into a large metal rack. He seized the chintzy handle and jiggled it until it opened, revealing two fifty-gallon fuel drums. Voila! Kevin shrugged good-naturedly. The man knows his dumb. Amos grunted, but didn't rise to the teasing. Instead, he grabbed the lip of the rightmost drum and started manhandling it out of the cupboard. Kevin rushed to his aid, and the two of them walked the barrel out until it was hanging half-out over the floor. Jeremiah! Kevin grunted as he twisted the drum out its last half-step. The the furniture, darling! Jeremiah cast about theatrically for a moment, like Marcel Marceau trying to remember where he'd left his voice, then spotted the large blue metal monstrosity in the corner near the pegboard. He fetched it and brought it back to Kevin and Amos, sliding its tongue beneath the lip of the barrel. Kevin pulled the straps free from the crank and handed them around the center of the barrel's girth to Amos, who passed them back around to Kevin, who tied them off at the crank. Kevin looked up at Jeremiah and nodded his thanks. We'll get this. You get the rest of the stuff on the list. Amos pulled a small scratch pad with the list on it out of his back pocket and handed it to Jeremiah, who flipped through it as he wandered away. Kevin torqued the strap down and Amos grabbed the dolly handles and pulled, successfully lifting the 400-pound drum up on edge. Straining and heaving, the two of them walked it up the three short steps to the entryway, turned right, and wheeled it out into the solarium. The solid, sparkling, crystalline white wall shimmered in the hall entryway light. It stretched from floor to ceiling, packed tight against the front of the house. With the massive front door open, the foyer terminated at the cold mass, the view of the ice spoiled only by the hulking frame of a Frenchman standing in front of it with a shovel and a garbage can. Gerd raised the shovel over his head, pushed it deep into the wall, twisted it so that it broke loose a bore of snow, and heaved it into the receptacle. Adele pursed her lips in satisfaction, then walked from the entryway back to the kitchen and helped Carol empty the perishables from the fridge into a box. They worked quickly and in silence, and with the generator it probably wasn't necessary, but Garrett had pointed out that it was senseless to depend on a whole sequence of machines and circuits when the house was... surrounded by ice. After a little wrangling, Carol had acquiesced to keeping perishable ingredients in the snow, but keeping the leftovers and the drinks in the fridge. With Jeremiah's stash of fresh fruits and other vegan goodies, and the meats, sauce bases, and pastry doughs comfortably packed in several large boxes, along with the stack of bread that hadn't yet been rotated to the front, they were about ready to start the hall by the time Gerd called I'm ready for the perishables now. from the entryway. Jeremiah lifted a bundle of wood and tossed it out of the way. The bit of twine holding it together burst on impact, sending the sticks scattering across the floor. Typical of the universe to be so fucking insistent about gravity. He picked up the sticks and stacked them, then pointed to the pile and said, Stay. The little yellow scratch pad listed five bundles of wood, three propane tanks, and the pump for the fuel drum. He quickly piled five more bundles of wood, which cut him a nice path through the cord to the propane tanks on the shelf above the pile. The pump, however, wasn't back there. It hadn't been in the cabinet where they kept the fuel, either. Jeremiah yanked the drawers in the workbench below the tools open, but found nothing but more tools and the occasional pink washcloth. He threw open all the cabinets he could see. Still nothing. It wasn't on the shelves, which he tossed thoroughly. There was nothing here he didn't recognize, and certainly nothing that looked like it was designed to hook onto the side of a large steel drum. Standing in the middle of the room, Jeremiah realized belatedly that he'd pretty well destroyed the order in the room, and had just created a shitload of work for himself. Perfect. So it wasn't near anything remotely fuel or tool-like, which meant, what, was hiding in a Chinese puzzle box? What's the point of being a queen
2: of organization if you don't organize things in a way that makes sense?
1: He dragged his eyes back over the serrated conflation of doors and drawers and scattered shelf items. Where the hell could it be? Another passed with his eyes, and he noticed a little cabinet behind a pocket door running floor to ceiling in a corner along the outside wall. Tucked away just right, it looked like a wall decoration rather than a proper cupboard. Sliding the pocket door aside, he found a cache of brooms and mops. More of them than any reasonable person would ever want. They weren't quite organized by days of the week, but it wouldn't take more than a stiff breeze to turn whatever mind obsessively collected so many different sorts of bristles on sticks into one that would label them and arrange them by their best use dates. It looked like Carol was prepping for dildo practice with her whole coven. Underneath the phallic forest was a little cubbyhole, and in the cubbyhole sat something that could only be the siphon pump he was looking for. Of all the places? He shook his head and rolled his eyes, then squatted down and pulled the siphon out. As he tugged at it, one of its hoses seemed to catch on something in the back of the cubbyhole. A few more jiggles, and it wouldn't come loose. Jeremiah yanked hard, and the spring-loaded hose leapt out at him, the end whipping at his forehead. For a moment after the impact, he felt as if the whole world was trying to slide slightly sideways. He rubbed the sting out and, grumbling, wrapped the hose loosely around the pump handle. It wasn't until he was about to stand up that he noticed the bottom of the cabinet. The bottom shelf, which he had assumed was the floor, lay askew. There was something underneath it. He looked around. There wasn't anyone looking. He'd never come across a false bottom in a cupboard before. What was it doing here at the lowest point on the garage floor? He glanced back to the shifted board. Nobody was looking. Nobody would know. Jeremiah set the pump down on the indoor-outdoor carpet next to himself. He stretched his hands to the board and worked his fingers down into the crack. Lifting the board up and away, knocking a couple of cans of spray paint, he saw probably the last thing he expected to see. A flat slab of concrete, flush with the floor outside the cupboard, with a little hole in the middle, maybe two inches across. It looked like a drain pipe, or would have if it weren't for the strange maroon color and the fibers running down the edges lengthways. As he stared at it, "'He felt his stomach turn an ugly shade of green. "'He'd seen that sort of texture before. "'It was the texture of meat. "'He couldn't take his eyes off it. "'The green in his stomach seemed to match the light coming out of the hole, "'pale but pure, the color of unabashed nausea. "'Against his better judgment, he found himself leaning further and further down "'until his face was only a hand's width from the tube.' It seemed to plunge down for a foot or two and then curve sharply back under him in the direction of the rest of the house. Almost without knowing what he was doing, he stood back up and went to the shelf where the flashlights were. He grabbed the largest maglite he could find and returned to the hole. It didn't pulsate or weep or do anything to suggest it was anything other than a plain, if weirdly shaped, pipe... But Jeremiah couldn't shake the feeling that he was staring down the winking anus of some great beast. As he drew near, he felt a cold breeze come up at him, and then he heard it growl, like the sound of metal wrenching a mile away down a canyon. The green light wasn't uniform. It definitely shone stronger on the left side of the tube than the right, but whatever made that green was past the bend and, try as he might, he couldn't get a good angle on it. The chill air wafted up again, and he heard that faint growl once more. Like the breath of a large, hibernating ice snake. He shivered. Jeremiah looked around again furtively, suddenly terrified that he'd be discovered. He couldn't let anyone else find this. He needed to figure out what it was first. There was something down there. And whatever it was, they weren't going to find it. Not till he knew what it was. Then they'd have to come ask him about it. Yes. That was it. Close it back up. Mark it. Walk out of here like nothing ever happened. He replaced the false bottom, making sure it fit flush, then returned the two paint cans to their original places, as near as he could remember them. Reaching under the hem of his t-shirt, he found a loose thread and yanked it out. He set it carefully in a loop under the leftmost spray can, making sure to leave just the edge of the loop sticking out with one stray end a shape he'd be able to identify, and one that wouldn't hold if someone moved the can. Since the can sat right over the join of the false floor, nobody could reach his discovery without alerting him next time he saw it. Hey, if it worked for James Bond and Dr. No, it should work for him, right? He stood up and looked around, satisfied. He'd have to spend more time later today cleaning the garage again, but that was okay. It would give him some undisturbed time to solve the mystery of the meat pipe. Jeremiah scooped up the pump in an armload of wood and headed out the door to find the other men. The diesel drum settled onto the concrete slab with the sound of a colossal quarter spinning down to a stop on a stone table. Once it settled, Amos let go his guiding hands and sang dramatically, Here it is. I mean, here it is. The diesel generator wasn't obvious to the eye if you were in the solarium for hot tubbing or weight training. It was large enough to require its own room. Well, closet anyway. Its door looked like the door that protected hot water heaters in older houses. A regular closet door with a mesh grill across the bottom. Kevin opened the door and whistled. Big generator. Amos stepped forward and elbowed Kevin aside, then checked the exhaust pipes running into the generator. The seals seemed good, so there shouldn't be any problem with the exhaust leaking into the room. The pipes themselves ran straight up through the roof, but there was no way to tell how high. Looks like the exhaust is hooked up to a chimney. Amos knocked on the pipe, trying to get a sense of how far up it went, but the brackets that held it to the wall dampened it too much for him to hear anything useful. That could
3: be a problem if the opening is covered and the exhaust starts melting... Nope, nope, never mind.
1: Got a spit valve here. So, all we really have to worry about is if there's so much snow the gas can't escape and it backs up and kills the engine. From behind them, a suspiciously French voice corrected him. No, they're all as tall as the Evans. So, if we're okay to breathe, we're okay to run this. Amos arched an eyebrow, impressed. Damn, does she think of everything? Looking over at Gerd, he saw the giant dragging a trash can full of snow. He stopped next to a drain in the floor. Wait, my friend. "'That she does. May I trouble you for a hand?' "'Sure.' Amos moved to the trash can and grabbed a handle on one side. Matching his movements with Gaird, he tilted it to one side and got a hand under it. Together they lifted it up and dumped the contents into an inglorious pile atop the drain grate.
3: "'Oh, yes. We got everything we need here.
1: "'What did you find?' Kevin backed out of the closet, holding a pamphlet triumphantly in his hands.
3: "'According to this, as long as we keep the other lights low, we'll have enough juice to run the spa.'
1: Found it! Jeremiah bounded through the door and handed a rather cumbersome-looking siphon pump to Kevin. Good man. Kevin took the pump from Jeremiah and used the lever on its handle to pop open the cap on the drum. He snaked the suction hose down through the neck and guided the spigot to the fuel tank on the generator. Amos crossed his arms and leaned back on the weight bench as Kevin poured over the pamphlet. After a moment, the physicist's eyes lit up and he did some fiddling with the generator tank. When his body moved aside, it looked like he'd found a way to seal the spigot on the mouth of the gas tank. Kevin flipped open the valve and gave the lever five good pumps, then stepped back and admired his work.
3: And that ought to do it.
1: Now we just wait until the power goes out and turn it on. Mom's thought of it all. Jeremiah's expression shifted from admiring to sour.
2: Mommy this, Carol that. You guys sound like a cult.
1: You'd prefer we were devoted to your beloved Peter Führer?
2: Fuck off. Now that's diplomatic.
1: Amos stood up, more out of habit than anything else. When tensions escalated, he always did. Without even thinking of it, he made sure he was less than two long steps away from Jeremiah. Gerd was ahead of him, walking directly to Jeremiah. It was like watching a mountain go on tiptoe. <laughs> She's younger than every one of you, but you all... God, it's
2: demeaning. Only well, the very young think age has much to do with wisdom, garçon. Listen to the old wretch he know there's something grand about surviving to 60 with your luxury intact, no?
1: Jesus, I'm in pornographic Disneyland. Jeremiah shook his head. From the look on his face, Amos would have thought he'd just walked in on a seven-dwarf gangbang. Amos felt a song coming on. He tried to resist, he really did, but some moments were just too perfect. You want to see sin of the wickedest kind? Here it is! Please, God,
3: I'll do anything. No show tunes, please!
1: The jitterbug had paled after a while. There was something about dancing beneath the stars that lent itself to Moonlight Sonata. Sarah and Katie waltzed slowly, even though it wasn't properly a waltz, each singing a harmony line that together blended into melody, giving meter to their steps. The longer they moved under the projected stars, the more it felt like they really were dancing around the pillars of heaven or waltzing on a giant galactic disc. Sarah found herself falling into Katie's eyes, her oldest friend, her first lover, still the most dependable person in her world even now that they lived 200 miles apart. She never wanted their song to end. This was what love was. This was what home felt like. The universe, alas, had slightly different plans. A strange... Almost musical noise filtered up from below. It was muffled and garbled, but it sounded like... Sarah cocked her head at Katie while she listened. No, 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 it couldn't be. Sounds like the men are singing? Katie locked eyes with Sarah, and suddenly they were both off in a race for the door. Katie edged just in front of her at the top of the stairs and then yelled,
0: Lights! Oh! Oh, shit!
1: Sarah tried valiantly to skitter to a stop in the middle of the stairs, failed completely, and wound up sliding down them feet first. In a heap at the bottom of the stairs, she felt her thighs. Yep, that was going to leave a mark. Undeterred, she sprang lightly to her feet and tore back up the stairs, switched off the planetarium contraption, tossed the cheesecloth back over it, and did noble battle with the force of gravity once again, this time vaulting nearly the whole length of the staircase by diving forward and planting her hands on the railing. It was one of the first fancy dance moves she learned, and it still worked. She alighted softly at the bottom of the stairs, looked at Katie once again, and the two of them tore forward in a barely undeclared race for the ground floor. There you go. Adele finished opening the valve on the propane tank. Carol turned the gas burner on and set a match to it. The flame leapt from the match to the methane in a quick whoosh, wreathing the burner in thin tongues of blue.
0: Success.
1: Carol nodded her satisfaction to Adele and handed over the matchbox which Adele set on the counter next to a bundle of taper candles. The vague musical noises coming from the solarium burst through the door all at once as the men moved in lockstep singing as raucously as they dared, trading lines like they were from an old musical. What in God's name are they singing? Carol didn't have time to answer before Gerd burst through the kitchen doorway and sang to her, You wanna live life in the rottenest way? Carol blinked, not sure if she should respond, before Amos popped out from behind Gaird. Here it is! Women and whiskey, night and day! Kevin's tenor cut through the door. Carol didn't miss a beat. She recognized the tune just enough to answer, Here it is! Amos headed straight for Adele, took her hands and swung her out in a wide twirl,
2: You wanna the golden, golden calf? Ankle and thigh and upper half Here it is,
1: I mean, here it is Adele joined the chorus in answer. Carol took Kevin's hands and the four of them formed a procession around the island in the kitchen. Gerd went before them and pushed the table out of the way to make a dance floor. Somewhere along the line, Katie and Sarah slipped in as if through the quantum foam from the neighboring dimension, and for the next three minutes they were all flying together among the stars of Broadway, singing and vaulting and twirling this way and that in their anthem of defiance. Adele stood up on a chair and shouted out to the assembly, Will you go to heaven, will you go to hell? Go to hell! Either repent or fare thee well. Fare thee well! Gerd swept I Adele off the table and deposited her gingerly I mean, back into the fray as Amos finished up the final chorus. It is, I mean, here
2: it is. Here it is. I mean, here it is. Here it is. I mean, here it
0: is. Oh, I love that song.
1: <laughs> and then as if on cue, The lights went out. Save for the burner's blue tongues of fire, no light shone in the house. After some fumbling, Carol heard someone trip and bang against the stove, knocking the knob and shutting off the last of the light. And all was dark and quiet. You've been listening to Episode 9 of Down From 10, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Music by Danny Shade, with additional music by Ludwig von Beethoven, and by Andre Previn and Alan J. Lerner from Paint Your Wagon, with cooperation from BMI. Starring T. Morris as Amos Maple, Philippa Ballantyne as Carol Lewis, Nathan Lowell as Gerd Falkstein, Miss Callender as Sarah Evans, Kitty Nakian as Katie Sato, Nobilis Reed as Kevin Walden, chris lester as jeremiah evans and christiana ellis as adele surhan sounds courtesy chris lester artistic whispers and the free sound project This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 2009, J. Daniel Sawyer, based on a screenplay copyright 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.5 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. The universe is a strange and complicated place Filled with mystery, sex and danger The Mark of a Druid By Rhonda R. Carpenter Do you believe in karmic debt and blood oaths? Neither did they Available now at Amazon.com or as a free serialized podcast at Podiobooks.com and www.themarkofadruid.com I'm Jack Hosley from Wander Radio over at WanderRadio.com and you're listening to Down
2: From Ten by the incomparable J.
3: Daniel Sawyer.
1: guess now we get to find out whether that generator works. If it doesn't, they might be in trouble. If it does, the question remains, what the hell is that meat pipe? More importantly, are we going to have to put up with more show tunes as these weirdos descend further into madness? And the most pressing question of the day, where the hell have I been all month? Well, funny thing, my computer caught on fire. Well, actually, technically, two of them did. I didn't lose any data, but I did lose the ability to access it for a while while I rebuilt the things and installed power conditioners on all my lines and did a little street corner prostitution to pay for it all. But now I'm back on. I'm writing Free Will. It's going to be a near thing getting it done for the podcast, but it's going to be so much fun. I'm in a marathon recording session to finish up all of Down From Ten by the end of the month, so I have a solid month to do nothing but free will, so that I can get it to you starting November 11th as planned. Remember the podcaster, Triple Threat, Philippa Ballantyne's Digital Magic, Chris Lester's Things Unseen, and my free will and other compulsions are all dropping their first episode on the same day, November 11th, 2009. Be there. I also have big news... You know by now that Carol, in the story, is a steampunk author, and most of you know that I've published a steampunk story or two. Well, I'm on the committee for the Nova Albion Steampunk Exhibition. The programming folks from last year's steam-powered convention that I appeared at have decided to do their own thing apart from the organizers. This year, we're going for a convention twice as big and more than four times as grand. It'll be at the Hilton Garden Inn in Emeryville, California, March 12th through the 14th, 2010. Mark your calendars. A website is coming online soon, and I will keep you posted as it does. There's going to be a lot of cool goodies there, too, as well as the ability to book your tickets. As I catch up on recording here, I'll also start dropping the special features. We've done a feedback show. I've got the spectacular two-hour-plus launch cast with Tim Morris, Philip Valentine, Chris Lester, and Kitty Nakian, and we've got uh, another Antithesis feedback show coming. And oh man, my hard drive is getting full. I got to drop this stuff just so I can clear space. For those of you in the Bay Area or who are coming to the Bay Area for business, I will be at World Fantasy Con this year in San Jose to meet people, implement my nefarious plans to advance my publishing career, and to help Gail Carragher launch her new steampunk fantasy novel, Soulless. If you haven't heard about this yet, check out my review at www.jdsawyer.net. It's called, I believe, Etiquette by the Full Moon. Or stay tuned to the feed later tonight, when I'll be dropping a sample chapter that I produced for her publisher to help promote the book. It's hysterical, it's very clever, and it's one of those rare books that breaks out of all the genres and will appeal to just about everybody. It's oodles of fun, so I hope you enjoy the sample and, if you're in San Jose, come out to World Fantasy Con. Thanks for coming out to the Pub Crawl on August 12th. It was a great evening with some really intense conversations about science, education, history, economics, and the current and declining state of the book industry. We must do it again soon. I will keep you posted as plans develop. I'm guest hosting Patio Racket Live on September 16th, where I'll interview Rhonda Carpenter and Heather Rulo about Patio Racket and their novels. Find me there at 6 p.m. Pacific Time on September 17th at www.blogtalkradio.com. The orders continue to come in for the predestination poster. Once we get 20, we'll place the print order and start shipping them out. If you like the cover art, this is a chance to have a signed, poster-sized print of it. It looks gorgeous, and you should be able to proudly display it on your wall as long as you don't work somewhere you know where people might sue you for sexual harassment. Or you may just want to keep it for a collector's item. Pre-orders get signed and numbered posters, so don't delay. You can find order information on all three blogs and under the Swag tab at www.jdsawyer.net. Remember, if you're listening to the Antithesis feed, only the first 10 episodes of Down from 10 will be posting there. After that, you'll need to switch to either the Down from 10 feed or the jdsoyer.net Uber feed, which is of course the one I recommend. You can find all my feeds in the right sidebar at www.jdsawyer.net. And finally, I will be on the Brass Needles podcast talking about Deep Space Nine with Miss Calendar. Brass Needles is a science fiction, steampunk, and knitting podcast. It's actually quite entertaining, even if you don't knit. It's hosted by the lovely Miss Calendar, who plays Sarah Evans on Down From Ten. And you can find me there at brassneedles.com as soon as the next episode posts. Thank you for the feedback, positive, negative, and mixed that you've sent in so far. Even the one guy who didn't like Episode eight at all, hopefully this one makes up for it. Remember that you can leave questions, comments, criticisms, and whatever else you like at dan at jdsawyer.net or on the blog at downfrom10.jdsawyer.net. You can leave voicemail at area code 206-350-5739. And of course, if you're enjoying yourself... Please do tell your friends. Post a review on iTunes and blog about us. Also remember that you can drop a couple of bucks in the tip jar at jdsawyer.net and on the Down From 10 blog at downfrom10.jdsawyer.net. A portion of the proceeds also go to our composer extraordinaire, Danny Shade. Whew! And with that, we hit the end of the news and comment for this week. This week, maybe I should try to get Paul Harvey's old job when he dies. A month missed makes for a lot of updates. Next week, our heroes deal with the blackout, cope with naked ambition, and find out just how bizarre things can get when you play with fire. So tune in this weekend, and remember always, you can make the whole world end if you but count down from ten.